quick reminder, Cyrus, in the first year of his reign, in 536 B.C., sent the decree out that we just reread to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. We have a list in chapter 2 of those who return to Jerusalem. This list is very similar to the list that you will find in Nehemiah chapter 7. However, although the end total is the same, the lists of some of the groups and some of the sub-numbers change. And the reason is something that is not explicitly given, but it seems to be that in Ezra there is the listing of those who committed to go, and in Nehemiah, there are those who are actually those who went. At first, there are those who make the commitment. Some of them don't follow through. There's a parable of Jesus where he talks about the son who agrees to do something and then doesn't perform, right? There are also those who might initially go, no, I don't want to commit to do that. That doesn't sound fun. And then a conviction of conscience, just as the caravan train is beginning to head off from Babylon... You might say, somebody goes, I gotta go. And they grab their stuff and they go along. Right? So there's those who say no and then, like in the parable with Jesus again, who end up doing the command. Right? So those who went versus those who said they would go, those are different. It is also possible that there's some other difference of counting, but that's the explanation that I have read that I think is. Uh, what makes the most sense given the context of the two lists. So chapter 2, verse 1. Now these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. Okay, Notice the beginning there, the people of the province. That is a very humbling term. The people of the province. Judah was once a great kingdom. It was a kingdom that was independent that made other kingdoms into provinces of its domain. It was a kingdom that took extracted tribute from river to river. And now it is a province of an empire. An administrative district. Now, this list of people, this is an honored list. People willing to take risk and burden to go to a place of discomfort in order to rebuild rather than staying in places of ease. To return to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own city, to return to the place of inheritance. Now, I'm going to jump down to the end of verse 2 for a second. Okay? It says the number of the men of the people of Israel. It doesn't say the number of the men of the people of Judah. Israel. Many cults like to emphasize the idea of the lost tribes of Israel. All twelve tribes return to the land. All twelve tribes return to the land. We get a count of about 50,000. The only ones that are listed, the total doesn't quite add up to that. There's more than 10,000 people extra from the total. What, what is that? The ones that are listed are Levites, Benjamites, and Judites. The only ones we get lists of are the ones from those three tribes. Everybody else is not counted. They're counted in the total but it doesn't give us the detail about them. So the remainder are Israelites from the other tribes. So we end up with the other nine tribes being accounted for there. Now, go back to the beginning of verse 2. Those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, Nehemiah, Zariah, Reliah, Mordecai, 
Bill Shun, Miss Parr, Big Vi, Rahum, and Bayana. Take note of Zerubbabel, who I think is also Sheshbazar, by the way. So you're going to see the governor of the land, Sheshbazar. It's very common for the Persians and the Babylonians to have given alternate names to the Jews. Okay, so we have Daniel, for example, which means God is my judge, being given Belshazzar as a name. You find that his three friends are given foreign names. You find that commonly in government administration here, the imposition of a foreign name on these people is a part of their being a conquered people. Zerubbabel, which means born in Babel, is the governor leading the return. He is a grandson of King Jehoiachin. King Jehoiachin was one of the sons of Josiah, and he was taken by Nebuchadnezzar and put into captivity. And then we find that Emperor Evil Marduk, or something to that effect, having a hard time. Ethan, I'm looking for you. Where are you? Say it right. Evil Marduk. Close enough? Okay, that was a shrug. So, that guy, who is a, uh, an emperor of Babylon, before the emperor who ends up being the last, that guy ends up taking Jehoiachin, and he takes him out of prison and lets him eat at his table. Okay, so Zerubbabel is a grandson of Jehoiachin. Okay, so that's the, actually the story, by the way, that ends 2 Kings. Okay, the end of 2 Kings is the story of Jehoiachin being released and being able to eat at the table of evil Marduk. Now, Zerubbabel is prophesied about and talked about in the other prophets that we're going to see that interact here. Zerubbabel is talked about as being a signet ring on God's finger. Zerubbabel and Jeshua, Jeshua is also spelled Joshua in other places, and Jeshua, Joshua, they just mean Yahweh is salvation. In Greek, it would be spelled Jesus or Yesu. Okay, so it's just the name, it's the Hebrew name that means Jesus. So Yahweh is salvation. Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, are sort of the Moses and Aaron of this second exodus. Okay, Zerubbabel is the chief magistrate, and Joshua is the high priest. Now, in Zechariah chapter 6, which we'll get to later in the Sig Zillick series, you have a reference to the idea of Zerubbabel and Joshua being a good team. And it points forward to the idea that they're such a good team that their, their teamwork is a typology of Christ with the unification of priesthood and kingship. Okay, so they work so well together that they're working well together in the two offices of the magistracy and church office point to the idea of the unity of priest and king in Christ. The Nehemiah is listed here. A lot of commentaries want to make this Nehemiah not the other not the Nehemiah who wrote Nehemiah. They're wrong. They have a, if, you, if you find that they say this is not the same Nehemiah, you know you've found somebody who's adopted the Ptolemaic timeline. Okay? So Nehemiah and Ezra are there together in this first leaving to go to Jerusalem. Mordecai is Esther's uncle who becomes her adoptive father. Okay, so this is the Mordecai in the book of Esther. Okay, so the team's all here. So you have these guys in particular. These are leaders here. Now, in Nehemiah, the list is 12, these leaders. Okay, here you've got a list of 11 leaders. Nehemiah, it's 12. Nehemiah is emphasizing the similarity between you having the leaders of the 12 tribes, the similarity to the initial exodus. So the 11 guys listed here, it may be that initially... There was not a commitment, whereas one actually ends up going. So you end up with everybody actually going in Nehemiah. Okay, so the number of the men of Israel, or the people of Israel. Again, this is not just Judah. It's a return for the people from all 12 tribes. 
And that allows for the fulfillment of lots of prophecies. Okay, verses 3 through 20. Let me tell you what this list is. This is a list of the covenanted members who have an ability to trace back to their fathers and to their land in Israel. In particular, from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. They are identified by the house of a great father or by a family name or a clan name. So these are the people whose names are associated with a prominent person in their lineage. And so this list out is a list of men. And the names here are houses that, these are men that, that, that catechized their houses well enough that across generations they were faithful enough to go back to the wasteland of Jerusalem at the call of God and not stay in the pleasure palaces of Babylon. Okay, so these names are honored names. It'd be like if the Lord blesses our efforts and two or three generations from now there are hundreds of children that have come forth from the families here. If they were organized and remembered by the households they came from now. And there was a reading of those names and a remembrance of that. So here they are. The people of Parash, 2,172. The people of Sephatiah, 372. The people of Ara, 775. The people of Pehath Moab, of the people of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The people of Elam, 1,254. The people of Zatu, 945. The people of Zechiah, sorry, of Zechai, 760. The people of Bani, 642. The people of Bebai, 623. The people of Asgad, 1,222. The people of Adonai Kam, 666. The people of Bigvi, 2,056. The people of Adin, 454. The people of Ater, of Hezekiah, 98. The people of Bezai, 323. The people of Jorah, 112. The people of Hashem, 223. The people of Gebar, 95. So this is the group of people organized by these family, clan, or great father names. The next set from verses 21 through 35 are people organized by a geographic zone. What does that tell you? What's the difference? The difference is the ones that are organized by a family name or clan name, a, a, a great father name, these are ones that had a man that discipled well enough, led well enough, that there was a family cohesion across generations. And the rest of them are listed people that do not have a large enough family cohesion left over to be listed in that way, but instead it's clustered by town. Which means those men did not disciple well enough so that across generations there was a large contingent worthy of being listed. But these are individuals who went past their upbringing and past the inheritance they had of their fathers. And they became more holy than what was around them. They were willing to take the scorn of their families and leave them behind to obey God to go to Jerusalem. Though they had not a large clan, not a large family, no great father to rally around. Whether you have an inheritance from a godly father that came before you that you can rejoice in, or whether you have been singular and solitary, having to come by yourself into godliness. In either case, the Lord honors you as his precious seed. And what we find in verses 21 to 35, here are the ones, here are the, the singles, the people that are by themselves, the small number 
And the Lord places them into families. He places them into a covenant community. He gathers them together to be not alone, but to have a large quantity of brothers around them. The people of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Netophah, 56. The men of Anathoth, 128. The people of Asmaveth, 42. The people of Kirjatharim, Sephirah, and Beeroth, 743. The people of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 223. The people of Nebo, 52. The people of Magbish, 156. The people of the other Elam, 1,254. The people of Harim, 320. The people of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725. The people of Jericho, 345. The people of Sinah, 3,630. Okay, so these are the covenanted members that have an ability to trace back to their fathers and their land in Israel, identified by a location or a patrimony, a traditional hometown, the inheritance that the Lord gave out to them in the lots that we find in Deuteronomy and Joshua. Verse 36, now what we're leaving, as opposed to dealing with the men of Judah and Benjamin, we now move into the Levites, and it starts with the priests. These are the priests that can trace their lineage back to Levi. They can demonstrate their priestly inheritance, their priestly role. The sons of Judea, the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. So what we find is this little group is a little bit less than 10% of the whole group as priests. There will be a condition of poverty, and so there will also be a great need to put money into rebuilding the temple. These priests aren't coming because they expect the tithes to be great. These priests are coming because they expect to carry weight. The Levites that come, there are more Levites than there are priests. And in the time of Hezekiah, the Levites were found to be more faithful than the priesthood. But now, at the time of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, we find that the priests were more zealous than the Levites. Don't lean just upon a godly heritage. It can wane from generation to generation. We find with the Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Cadmiel, of the sons of Chodaviah, 74. The singers who are of the Levites. The sons of Asaph. Does that name sound familiar at all? 128. This would be the Levitical choir, which I'm going to use as a theological argument to have the excuse of saying the deacons need to deal with the singing, and I don't need to deal with... No? Okay. Well, we can talk. Remember, the Levites take the duties that would be the diaconal duties. The priests deal with the duties that we would find associated with elders... The singers are a category inside of these Levites. The Levitical choir, a distinctive choir that's different from the assembly of the church as a whole, is a Levitical ordinance. A choir that is distinct, that is distinct from the rest of the church, is a Levitical ordinance and should not be carried over into the new covenant. It is important to hear the sounds of the voices of your congregation. But the singers, the sons of Asaph, 
128. These people would be people who, they are coming and they know that the singing is something they're going to need to do to do it with the sacrifices. And they are coming again, not expecting there's going to be some great load of tithes that they are able to enjoy. 42, the sons of the gatekeepers. That'd be a fantastic name, by the way, for our security team. The sons of the gatekeepers. The sons of Shalom. The sons of Ater. The sons of Talmud. The sons of Akab. The sons of Hittita. And the sons of Shabai. 139 in all. Now these men, a small number for the security team to deal with 24-hour, seven-day-a-week security. Verse 43. So, so far we've got the Levites and their work to support what's happening and the priests themselves. You see how much smaller the Levitical group is coming. We've got more than 4,000 priests and, and the Levites just a few hundred across the gatekeepers, the singers, and the general category of the Levites. The next categories, chapter, look at verses 43 through 54, and then also 55 through 58. Okay? These get grouped together. Verse 58 says, And the Nethanim and the children of Solomon's servants were 392. Okay? These people get listed with a lot of names for only 392. Why do they get such particular honor? Okay, well, first of all, the Nethanim are typically associated with the Gibeonites from Joshua chapter 9. A people who are not of the nation of Israel, who are actually of the group to be exterminated, that Israel is commanded to make no covenant with. And they trick Joshua, and they get a covenant. And in covenanting, they become a part of the covenanted people. They become a circumcised people. They commit themselves to obedience to the God of the Bible. And they even commit themselves to an enslaving service to support the work of Israel. These men would also then have been attacked by King Saul. King Saul broke covenant with the Gibeonites, attacked them, and God brought curse on Israel for breaking covenant with the Gibeonites. And David organizes the Nethanim afterward in terms of how they're to work with and support the Levites. These men get listed when the men from the other nine tribes don't get listed. And they are foreign in their origin. They covenanted in, and in their covenanting in, they become a sort of honorary Levite. Their work comes in to support the Levites. And the groups that get added in, that are listed as Solomon's servants, those people that get listed in, are people that seem to be a part of a similar thing, covenanting in, uh, you find, for example, historically, David had men like Uriah the Hittite come in and covenant and then join in military service. These people seem to be a part of the administration supporting Solomon's leadership. So you have the servants of Solomon. So those men seem to become a sort of honorary member of Judah. So these guys, they come in, they become citizens, they covenant in, and there's this oath of service that they give whether it's the Nethanim supporting the Levites or the servants of Solomon supporting the civil administration of Israel. Do you think that there's any way that Babylon would have enforced those covenants to require the service of these people? Do you think when Persia took over Babylon that Persia would have enforced the covenant going back to Joshua or the covenant's going back to the reign of David or Solomon. No, these guys could have walked away. These men, the Nethanim, and the 
sons of Solomon's servants keep their covenant to serve and to maintain their identity with the Jews. Even though there is no enforcement mechanism and no one's going to hold them accountable and they take part in this hardship and go with them to take positions of low service and honor to go to the wilderness of Judea. These men, the Nethanim, are the choppers of wood, carriers of water, and hewers of stone for the Levites, who are the assistants to the priests. Or, they are that same thing for the civil administration, for a government that is under-resourced, has a bad tax base, and is going to have lots of work to do. So the servants of Solomon are going into public service to support the Zerubbabel administration, and the Nethanim would be going into service to support the high priesthood of Joshua in these low positions without anybody having any power to force them to do it. So they get listed. So when you hear their names, you should think about these people as men who keep covenant to their cost, though there be no earthly mechanism of enforcement. The Nethanim, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabeoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Siah, the sons of Padan, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Reiah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Paseah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Maunim, the sons of Nefusim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Basluth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkas, the sons of Caesarea, the sons of Tema, the sons of Naziah, and the sons of Hatifa. Now, Ezekiel, in chapter 44 of Ezekiel, preaches against allowing foreigners who are uncircumcised in heart and flesh to be sanctuary attendants. Some commentators say that's arguing against the Nethanim. That's not the case. The Nethanim covenanted and they were circumcised. These guys are, are you know, the equivalent. This would be like Ezekiel saying, hey, don't let unbaptized people, don't let uncovenanted people do the work of the church. But the Nethanim don't fit that. Right? They, are, they are people who are fully incorporated. Numbers 15 and Exodus 12 make it clear that non-Israelite families are, who accept circumcision, they have all the blessings of the covenant. And that there is a period of time during which they might have to go through some generations before their admission into uh, the, the temple or the tabernacle or full citizen rights in terms of like voting, for example. But there is a, a recognition that they become full citizens, and then even down the line in the generations, there's a granting of even those rights eventually to their descendants. Now, verse 55, the sons of Solomon's servants. Remember, these are the ones that are, that are organized to do the civil work that come in and that are not just a part of one of the existing tribes, but they come in as foreign converts. The sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Jala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Sephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pachareth of Zabim, and the sons of Ami. And let me point out a couple of those names. These names seem to be associated with either origin or jobs. 
Okay, the sons of Sophereth up at the top is the second guy mentioned. That is that would translate to the sons of the scribe. I would imagine that guy was probably Solomon's scribe, one of his scribes. Then you look at the name towards the end, the second to last one in that list, Pukareth of Zebaim, and that can be of Zebaim, or you can mix, you can kind of put the two together. And it, but in any case, you have the name. The name means gazelle keeper. Solomon had apparently private gazelle. Maybe it was so he could hunt whenever he wanted to, or maybe it was so he could observe them <coughs> dancing around in one of the gardens that he later laments having made in Ecclesiastes. I don't know. The gazelle keeper. An interesting state job. I wonder what the pension was like. The sons of Ami. That would be the sons of Ammon. So these are guys that came in from Ammon. Okay? So that's the idea there. So you have th- some of these guys, you can, you can see some history there in terms of the origins. So these names, a lot of them are foreign names. And so that's where you get that. So all the Nethanim and the children of Solomon's servants were 392. Verse 59. Okay, so what we're going to find here, verses 59 through 60, you have this group of people who claim to have Israelite ancestry, but there's not a record, so they can't find actually what their ancestry is, what their genealogy is. They've lost that. They don't have a demonstration of what their patrimony is in terms of the inheritance either. Okay? So these people are coming back, and they're saying, I'm an Israelite. I know I'm an Israelite. We don't have the records, but I want to be a part of this. And so they're coming back. These guys are coming back, and they're seeking to be a part of this work not having any land that they can make a particular claim to. And not having any sort of special role. But going, this is my people, this is my God, this is the work I want to be a part of. So these people also take on this special work. These are the ones who came up from Tel Melah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Edan, and Immer but they could not identify their father's house or their genealogy, whether they were of Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nakoda, 652. Now, verses 61 through 63, these are people who are just like the group before, but they claim to be Levites. They claim to have a priesthood association even, but they can't demonstrate it with a record. And so we're going to see there's an interesting solution that is dealt with for this. They would have a claim on being able to eat of the holy things, to be able to participate in tithes, to participate in work. And so there's some questions about how this is going to be dealt with. And of the sons of the priests, the sons of Hibiah, the sons of Koz, and the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. And the governor said to them, that they should not eat of the most holy things till a priest could consult with the Urim and Thummim. Okay, the Urim and Thummim. In Exodus 28, you have the priestly breastplate, and you've got these two stones, the Urim and the Thummim, and these were meant to be used as a sort of holy casting of lots to get answers from God. So this was continuing at this time. There was an ongoing ability to ask God questions, to deal with things, as the church was going through a maturing process in the Old Covenant. So they're waiting to do this. So the answer is going to be dealt with once they get things set up, the worship set up in Jerusalem. Now, there are only four of the cohorts out of the 24 cohorts of priests that used to exist that David organized all of the work around left over. So they're going to divide up the 24 sets of work between the four cohorts. So these priests that are, you know, these people that are claiming a priestly association, they would be desired. It would be nice to have more people to be able to divide up the work with. 
and to be able to divide up those times because these, these four cohorts are now going to have to deal with 24 different obligatory shifts and sets of work. Now, verse 64 through 67, you end up with this list of a bunch of things in terms of the number of people, and you end up with uh, major elements in terms of the totals of various types of significant pieces of property like animals. This gives you a good sense of the total wealth. Right? We had the wealth that was listed originally, you remember back in chapter 1, there was the stuff that was given out of the treasury, the stuff that was given in terms of the um, amount of gold and silver that was, that was handed over to, uh, to deal with the things from the priesthood and with the temple. But then there's also silver and gold that's held by people individually, and that includes, for example, the silver and gold that would have been given by people in Babylon, including the other Jews, the other Hebrews, the other Israelites, who would, didn't leave but still gave stuff to try to bless the people who were leaving. Okay. So the privately held gold and silver gets listed here. So the whole assembly together was 42,360 beside their, female, their male and female servants of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 men and women singers. Those are not the... Um, the Levitical singers. These are people who would be singers professionally, and so this is somebody who is uh, wealthy, bringing along people who are who are trained singers as part of the servant set. So they are added there. Their horses were 736. Their mules 245. Their camels 435. And their donkeys 6,720. That's a lot of donkeys. So these people, the, about 42,000 plus the, the 7,000 servants, we get to about 50,000 people. It's a lot of people to travel across the distance. Not a lot of people to settle Jerusalem. When you, when you look at this, great households, the, the list of servants, the word there really means slave. Great households in the Persian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, um, you would expect to have many slaves per, per that household, if it were a rich household. The commentaries that I read vary on this. Some of them say that's a lot of slaves. It means it's a wealthy group. Other people say that's a small number of slaves. It's a poor group. The horses, 736. Okay, horses, as distinct from other animals for labor, are typically associated with speed and human riding. Okay, that's a good indicator for you of households that had enough money to have somebody to save them transport time. Um, when you look at mules and donkeys, those are general use animals for burdens. When you look at camels, camels are in particular, they are animals that are meant to carry material across distance through deserts so that they can trade, okay? So this would be people who are probably merchants who own the camels. Okay, so the camels are for a merchant class that are looking for ways of carrying goods across deserts to be able, and across land, to be able to trade with less water. Horses are for shorter distance travel. And then the mules and the donkeys would be general beasts of burden. So you're looking at, this is sort of the the pool of labor that's available across animals and humans. Stuff that can be done. They're going to a city that's a wasteland and they need to rebuild the temple. Now again, there's more than 10,000 people here who are not a part of the Levites, Judah, or Benjamin. Verse Verse 68. Some of the heads of the fathers' houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place, according to their ability. They gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minas of silver, 
and 100 priestly garments. Okay, so here's the amount of gold they gave. You take that amount of gold, you turn it into pounds. It's 1,100 pounds of gold. It's a half ton of gold they offered. Okay, so 10 troy ounces per pound. You turn that into 11,000 troy ounces. Okay, modern terms, $2,000 about per troy ounce. It's a lot of money. We look at the silver. There's 6,000 pounds of silver. Okay, three tons of silver. Imagine carrying that the whole trip, getting to Jerusalem, and then giving it. It's not just giving the gold and the silver. It's giving it when you get there, too. Right? This, this idea of, of the work of taking it and then giving it. So the priests, verse 70, so the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. So this is the, there's this settling out. They go to their places they're distributing out across this land. They're going to the cities, and they're going to Jerusalem. So there's just spreading. Not even all these people are in Jerusalem. You see how you would, coming into the ruins of Jerusalem, this city that had been destroyed, and coming into this land with, again, this, this place that had been made a wasteland by Babylon a mere 70 years earlier. Coming into this and spreading out onto it, how huge of a task that would be. To get to chapter 3, these people, undaunted, verse 1, and when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Okay, so they are coming in a unified way. The individuals, the households, there's an agreement to maintain the church here. There's a state unity in terms of under the government of Zerubbabel. Verse 2. Then Joshua, the son of Josedek, and his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offering on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They have not rebuilt the temple yet, but the minimum thing they need to get going so that they can initiate again the public worship of the temple is to get the altar. They want to start the sacraments rolling. They want the sacrifices to be going. They want the proper worship of God to be existing there in the land according to the ceremonies of the Old Covenant. In order to do this, they give free will offerings. They, they give tithes. They, 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 there's an establishment of this church underneath Zerubbabel as authorized by Cyrus. And there's an endowing of the church with the resources that were given. They came from Cyrus, having first been taken by Nebuchadnezzar from Jerusalem in the past, held on to and returned back in the safekeeping of these people. Right worship is put into place immediately, though it be in irregular form, though it be in unsettled condition. They say we must see the right worship of God established in the land as quickly as possible. They work then to seek to advance into a settled condition and a regular condition. They seek to build You know, verse 3. No fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries. They set the altar on its foundations, on its bases. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. Okay, they're starting to offer animals here. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles. So they've come together. They're keeping one of these feasts together. It's commanded by God, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings and the number required by ordinance for each day. This is a reformation to see worship established according to the regulative principle. They're trying to do what God has commanded in his word and to see reformation here. Though they be small, though they be weak, 
though they be poor, though they have much to do, they seek to get the worship of God rolling. Afterward, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. You see here, they're, they're concerned for the liturgical calendar that God had established. They know that they had been kicked out of the land because the Jews would not give the Sabbaths that God had commanded and they are careful to observe them, knowing that their forebears in failing to keep had a, obtained a curse from God. Verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer... Actually, forgive me. I think I can't remember. I'm going to read verse 5 again. Afterward, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. So they're giving all the required elements and they're giving free will offerings. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They can get the, they get the bases of the altar down and they start offering, even though nothing else, not even the foundation of the temple is in place. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So they're paying masons and carpenters to work. They are giving food and drink and oil to Sidon and Tyre in exchange for cedar logs, food and drink and oil. Joppa is a little town on the coast, so they're then having to pull those in. You think their donkeys and mules are getting a good workout pulling those cedar logs from Joppa to Jerusalem? Verse 8. Now in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Josedak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. They're increasing the effort. They're increasing the organization. People are getting things established. Basic things are there. People are planting their farms, getting stuff going, and they're starting to go, okay, now we need to increase what we can do here. As their ability increases, they're putting more effort, more work into the work of getting the temple built. Then Joshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God. The sons of Hinnadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. So there's this work. There's a rising of leadership. The leadership is being vigorous to seek to see things done. The people are seeking to get work done. They are giving of themselves. They are volunteering. There's an organization. There's a coordination. There's this one heart element. There's the idea that one of the ways that the weak gain power is working together to advance in ranks though they have no king like the locusts. One of the ways is to work diligently like the ant. We find this diligent work. We find this unified effort to advance, to work together. And we also see that there's an organization here and it encourages them because these leaders are willing to work with those who are skilled and to seek to organize and direct and to make sure that it's not being put to waste. Verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord. Notice the sons of Asaph with symbols. And we have these, we have these this Levitical use of instruments to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. This is in accordance with David. This is the use of instruments is put into place in the temple with David. And here they are, the foundation's been laid, and here they are using the instruments for their musical worship at the temple. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. 
That word responsively, people sometimes feel like it's a antiphonal singing where it's like one group sings, the other one sings. It's not what's being said. It is simply the in response to this initiation. They are singing in response to what's happened, and they're praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And here they are, this line is either from Psalm 107 or 106, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. So it's given to show us that they're singing psalms. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And this idea of, of just barely getting there, the, the temple's not up yet, it's not fully built, but just this idea that we got, we got the foundation done so we can start building. That idea. A similar thing would be you know, if we see our, our church in a place where we just have two elders, right? Be, you go, wow, we have a session that exists that just has elders on it. And you would, all of a sudden, we'd still be this relatively unsettled, immature church, but you go, wow, there's, there's an advancement. That kind of a thing where you are grateful for the steps that are made though there's much work left to do. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Why are they weeping? They're weeping because they saw the glory of Solomon's temple. And they've seen how much work it has taken just to get the foundation laid for this new one. And so they remember what used to be on top of the foundation. The pouring out of their strength and resources, they look and they think, how can we ever get back to that glory? But the promises in Ezekiel are that the temple laid out for us in Ezekiel 40 through 48 will be more glorious. And the prophets that talk about this building of this temple, that it will be more glorious than the one that came before. The temple eventually would rise to the heights of the great Herodian temple that Jesus walked around in. And then the church replaces the temple and it's a more glorious thing than the temple. The Lord makes advances, though there are many things, many travails, many sorrows, many difficulties in this life. The restarting often results in weeping. As you think about how much was lost, the Lord will make it reach higher heights. These people wept. The others shouted aloud for joy. Those who had never seen it, all they knew was desolation. All they knew was a time without a temple. It's amazing what a perspective does. The the people who have seen what was great collapse, and the people who have only been there for the collapse, and start to see people rebuilding. The difference of the response. Many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard afar off. These are the beginnings of the labors of the people of God arriving back, rebuilding in ruins. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.